Father, thank you for these opportunities to think about these big issues, not always easy, not always comfortable or straightforward for us to consider these things. We thank you that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting in righteousness so that the, the, the man and the woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so we pray this morning that, that you would indeed equip us from your word as we think about gender. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So consider these um, scenarios. A Christian has a cousin. The cousin has recently announced her engagement to a man named George, but it turns out George used to be a woman called Sally. Arthur is a man in his 60s who's been a member of a church for many years, and one day he announces that from now on he wishes to be called Anne. He's been living privately as a woman for some time, and now he wishes to do so publicly. And the affirming spotlight on transgender issues in recent years has encouraged him to be honest with himself and his Christian friends about what's really going on. Uh, or there's a Christian family. They have three children. The middle daughter in her teens says that she was assigned the wrong sex at birth and encouraged by friends online wishes to explore puberty-blocking hormones. And there's a, a young boy who's never felt comfortable playing football and rough games and much prefers sitting quietly and doing crafts and playing with the girls in his class at his primary school. And he says he sometimes thinks he might really be a girl. And so the parents turn to their Christian friend for help. These are just a few real-life scenarios happening, not in massive numbers everywhere, but definitely happening. And I know some here have encountered things very similar to these situations in different ways at different times. Now, it is wise when we're thinking about these issues to distinguish between public political campaigning, on the one hand, and private personal pain and suffering, on the other hand. You see, that the, the people campaigning for transgender women to be able to swim in the ladies' pond on the heath are not necessarily the same people who, who are themselves experiencing the, the often hidden pain of gender dysphoria. So as we, as we think through these issues this morning, for, forgive me, as, as I've said before, as we've done, looked at these big issues, but forgive me if I speak crassly or unthinkingly about these issues. I'm, I'm obviously not a doctor. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. But I am a Bible teacher. And we believe God's word speaks into all of life. All of life. And that only God can tell us who we are as human beings. So before we get into what the Bible says, however, we should very briefly get clear on a few terms that are used. I'm talking now about how these terms are used generally in wider culture. I know some here will be very familiar with these things, others maybe not so much. What is the difference between gender and sex, first of all? 
Uh, people would say, well, sex is about what your body says you are. People might say, well, you're anatomically male or female. Gender is about what you feel that you are. So somebody might say they are anatomically male but identify as female in gender. If someone says they are a transgender man, they usually mean that their sex at birth was recorded as female, but now they identify as a man. And that's whether or not they've had any surgery or medical treatments. Same for a transgender woman. The, the, the gender in that, in that phrase is, the, is the, the gender that somebody uses now that they identify as. Uh, y- years ago, terms like transsexual were used. Today, that isn't a widely used term. It, it tends to be used by some, though, to, to, to speak for cases where someone has had surgery to change their sex, but perhaps that their gender that they identify as has remained constant. And obviously, people will own these terms and use them as they, as they see fit and as they see really fits their own experience for understandable reasons. There's a related but separate condition uh, called intersex, which is not to do with, well, sorry, which is to do with not being able to tell if a baby is a boy or a girl when they're born because of physical ambiguity. And again, that's extremely rare, but it is real and it's potentially very uh, distressing for those affected. Uh, Gender dysphoria is a recognized medical condition. The American Psychiatric Association defines it as a a marked incongruence between one's experienced or expressed gender and one's assigned gender of at least six months' duration. And that has to come together with clinically significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning. So in the UK, around 8,000 people were referred to a gender identity disorder clinic in 2018. 8,000 people in one year. Which, to, be put, to put it in context, is about the same as the number of vicars in the Church of England, that, that figure. So it's not, a, it's not a huge number by any means, but it is a significant minority. Putting gender dysphoria a bit more simplistically, it's sometimes been caricatured as saying that what counts is, uh, is what is between your ears, not what is between your legs. In other words, when a baby is born, their gender is provisionally assigned, some people would want to say. And actually, the, the, the prominent gender theorist Judith Butler would even hold that biological sex itself, she would say, is a social construct. So she would say, I wasn't born a girl. I was girled at birth. Other people imprinted this identity on me. And now it's up to, 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 to me to sort of express that as I see fit. We're going to hold all this up against what the Bible says about male and female and about the human body in a few moments. But just before we get to that, it's important to see that even on its own terms, this is an extremely fragile and unstable and self-contradictory system of thought. So here here briefly are three things to note, even before we open the Bible to to see what the Bible says about these things. There are more more things to say than this, but these are three big things to, to note. So here's the first one. Which of 
transgenderism and feminism will prevail? Which of transgenderism and feminism will prevail? Now, it might be neither, but it can't be both. And let me explain why. So it's, it's important to understand that the, the, the LGBT movement, and the T, of course, stands for trans, um, the, the LGBT movement is by no means of one mind on transgender issues and transgender rights. So some uh, lesbians, some radical feminists dispute that it's possible, in particular, for a man to become a woman. And if you think about it, you can understand why from that perspective. You see, the entire feminist movement is founded on the principle that men have been dominating women for thousands of years and, and taking over their space and, and, and their world. Now, I'm not saying I necessarily agree with that in every sense, but the point is to that kind of feminist, when someone who was born a man claims to be a woman, well, that is just one more example of that from that point of view. So Jermaine Greer is a prominent example of someone holding that position, as is J.K. Rowling, who came under significant criticism for comments recently that supported the idea that trans women are not really women, is what she had been saying on social media and things. Massive backlash against that, you may, may have seen. So there are, there are two distinct movements there. Can you see there's transgenderism, there's feminism. Now, neither of those is especially friendly towards Christianity, um, but they're kind of completely opposed to each other. Can you see? So which is going to, which, which is going to prevail? Which is going to win the day, if, if either of them? That is one question and, and, and thing to note. This, here's, here's a second thing. If anatomical sex is irrelevant to kind of who you really are, that your gender is between your ears, well, why seek to change it? It's a question to ask. Now, not every transgender person has surgery. Not every transgender person wants surgery, but, but many do. And there, there are questions around the logic of saying, well, first, anatomical sex is irrelevant to gender. It's, what between, it's what's between my ears that counts. But then secondly, therefore, I must change my anatomy to bring it in line with my experienced gender. Do you see that? It just doesn't quite make sense. So that's the second thing to note. And then, and then thirdly, does transgenderism actually rely on old-fashioned gender stereotypes? Does transgenderism actually rely on old-fashioned gender stereotypes? This is particularly an issue when you think about children being referred to gender dysphoria clinics. One sign that parents are told to look out for in a child who they think might have gender dysphoria is whether they like toys and clothes normally associated with members of the opposite sex. That's literally one of the things. If you go on the NHS website, you'll find that listed as one of the criteria to think about. Do you see, do you see at, that, at that point, society's got two contradictory messages, if you think about it. On the one hand, well, boys and girls can do whatever they want and they can play with whatever toys they want, they can wear whatever clothes they like, because why shouldn't they? Why should they have to fit into preconceived categories? I think we know, don't we? That, that is a very strong message about male and female in, in our culture generally. 
But then you get this message that, on the other hand, if a boy is consistently preferring dolls and wearing dresses, or you know, however it might be expressed, are you sure he isn't actually a girl? Now, do you see, this, this, this makes this whole movement an inherently unstable thing. And then the net result is that transgender really is a very fragile identity. So is it therefore surprising at all that there is so much pressure put on the wider world to affirm transgenderism as acceptable? Because perhaps if there's enough external affirmation, it might make up for the internal contradictions and questions. Okay, well, how, how should Christians respond to this? Bearing in mind that we're not just talking about, you know, a, a political movement. We are talking about real people um, who are sometimes exp- experiencing real pain in their lives about these things. Well, how should we respond? Well, of course, with compassion for those who, who are suffering, for, for those who, who are confused. But the, the, the thing about compassion is it can force you into action before you've really stopped to think what actually is the best thing for this person. Um, what would it look like to act in somebody's best interests? Christians believe we can only answer these questions about the best interest, both for ourselves and for others, by turning to what God says in, in, in the Bible. Now, we ha- we're, we're raising a lot of questions here. It's not going to be possible to answer every question. Some of these questions are extremely complicated and, and need a lot of wisdom and, and thought. But just because things are complicated, which they certainly are, doesn't mean we can't speak truthfully and relevantly into this incredibly complex issue so that we have a kind of starting point from a Christian point of view to to speak into these things. And maybe it will surprise you or maybe it won't to to hear that what we need most of all in, in, in considering this whole area that we're thinking about is to remember the gospel, the good news about Jesus. Now, when we think about the gospel, there are three big phases to the shape of the whole Bible story and the shape of the gospel message. Sometimes we say we put it in terms of creation, sin, and redemption or rescue. So God made us, we rebelled against him, God sent Jesus into the world to save us. But we're going to to see how actually you, you can see those basic categories in a bigger way. You can think about them as creation, decreation, and recreation. So sin or the fall is not just about moral failure, about breaking the rules. It fractures the whole of God's creation. We see that very clearly in the Bible, as we will, as we will see. And then Jesus' rescue in his death on the cross and his resurrection, it's not just a spiritual thing that makes us right with God, although that is absolutely true, Through Jesus' death and resurrection, the whole of creation is put back together. And actually, that is what it means to be brought back into relationship with God. Uh, As everything is restored and, and, and transformed and glorified. 
And so we will see this is good news for everyone and not least for transgender people. So let's, let's see these three main categories. And as we um, go into this, as we've done the last couple of weeks, um, we've had a question time after the service. We're going to do that again today. So as we go through this, please do be thinking what questions this provokes that you'd like to explore further. And Corinne's going to come and join me again later on and, and be involved in that. I know lots of people have to dash off at the end of the service, which is absolutely fine. But just think, if, if you do have a question, you could actually submit it through the, the, thing, the link that we put up. Um, and uh, you may not then be able to stay and hear the answer, but you, it will be on YouTube later. So you could, you could come and um, put a question in and then see how it's answered later, if that would be helpful. But let's see these three main categories then. First of all, creation. God made them male and female. And we had our first reading, which it might be helpful to get in front of you um, in a Bible or on your phone. Genesis 2, 18 to 25. What does it mean for God to be the creator of human beings? Well, well Genesis is, is clear. It means that he's the creator of our bodies. Making Adam involved giving Adam a body. And Adam, you see, he wasn't first some disembodied spirit who later acquired a body. Adam is his body, and his body is him. Now, ever since the Enlightenment, um, there's been an, an increasing tendency to see ourselves as merely brains on sticks. And therefore, the body actually is less relevant and should be, therefore, can, can be changed as needed because it isn't really who I actually am. But that isn't how God made us. This is what we see in, in, in Genesis. And, and actually, if we think about it, we really know this. It's not as if this is completely new to us, even in our wider culture. Because despite everything our culture will, will imply about who we really are, kind of distinct from our body, actually, you know, we know this, don't we? So if you've eaten a lot of pies, do you say, well, my body is very full now? Or No, you don't. You say, I'm full. I'm really full. Because my body is full. Or if I run over your bike in my car, well, you say, hey, look, you've just driven over my bike. But if I knock you down in my car and I drive over you, say, I mean, if you, you know, if, hopefully this wouldn't happen, but if you're still conscious, what do you say? You, you don't say you've driven over my body. You say, no, you've just driven over me. So, so taking body in the fullest sense of all that is physical about me, my thoughts, my emotions, but, but absolutely my physical body as well, that, that is me. I am my body. You are your body too. Now, of course, I am my soul, and one day my body will go in the ground, but I will be with Jesus. But actually, that will only be a temporary thing until my body and I, in that fullest sense, am raised. So we, we mustn't conclude from, from, from all that, that that what is physical about us is somehow less us, less me, less you, than, than, than the, the, the real me, which is kind of um, distinct from that. That is not how the Bible speaks about human beings. 
And actually, just as we think about it, it's, it's worth reflecting on this in, in this time of lockdown and Zoom and, and, and online church and all of it. You know, it's necessary for health reasons. We all understand that. But again, we're kind of seeing it's not the same. It can't be the same, can it? Because, as we see here, we are embodied creatures. We have bodies. And so we will never relate to each other in the same way from behind a computer screen. We just can't. It's not how we've been designed by God compared to being in the flesh with one another, as we say. That, that, that is how God has set up the world. And if that applies to our bodies, then it also applies to male and female. So, so chapter 2 in Genesis, verse 23, when Adam sees Eve, he says, here is a woman. And of course, the reason he says that, the reason he knows she's a woman and she's not a man is because he's looking at her and she's not wearing any clothes. And so it's, what is it that tells him that this is a woman? It's her body that tells him. And so remember uh, chapter 1, verse 27, God created man or mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them right from the start male and female is built into god's perfect creation and that is still true now later in matthew's gospel when jesus refers back to genesis 2 in response to the pharisees questioning him on divorce jesus quotes these verses and he says literally from the beginning god made them male and female in other words this is a pattern that began in God's perfect creation, but it didn't just stop there. And the fall, although it, as we'll see in a moment, distorted that, it didn't remove those uh, categories of male and female that are built into the way that God has made human beings. God gets to say what a person is. God gets to say then what male and female are. They're not socially constructed. They are rooted in bodily sexual identity. But then, you see, someone will say, well, hang on, it's not, it's not as straightforward as that, is it? Come on. Because as, as we've already acknowledged, there are intersex conditions, there is gender dysphoria, and while we don't see those in Genesis 1 and 2, so really how relevant is this in this uh, complicated world today? But that's why we need to come next to Genesis 3, which comes after Genesis 2. And in Genesis 3, we see everything changes. And what we see then is decreation. Sin results in broken bodies and disordered desires. In fact, it fractures the whole of creation. But it results in broken bodies and disordered desires. See, in chapter 3 of Genesis... Just to summarise it, Adam and Eve rebel against their creator by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the results are literally cosmic. They step out of their God-given roles of reflecting God's image into the world, and as a result, the whole of creation, including them, is broken. And so in, in Romans in the New Testament, Paul um, sums it up like this. He says in Romans chapter 8, verse 20, he describes what happened when sin came into the world by saying that creation was subjected to frustration. 
Things are not now as they were supposed to be. Our physical bodies decay and fall apart. Our impulses and desires are towards pleasing ourselves and not God. And the cause of that is sin. The sin of Adam and Eve and the sin of all their children that continues even today. This is a messed up world. And therefore there are illnesses and ultimately there is death. Now it's not that every illness is the result of a specific individual sin. There is general brokenness that sin has brought into the world. And that includes, as we've been saying, that conditions like intersex, where despite God making male and female, there are a very, very small minority of people who have what they call intersex traits, so that they're not clearly male or female. It seems Jesus was aware of this in Matthew 19, verse 12, and he mentions people who are eunuchs from birth. But but beyond this, the fall also means that our desires and impulses are affected. And that, for some, may mean a disordered view of our bodies. And the interaction between natural disease on the one hand and sin on the other hand is complicated at this point. See, the thing is, sin affects us at the level not just of what we do, which is often how we think about sin, but actually affects us at the level of our desires, what we want, what we desire, what we will. Now, just read Romans 7 if you want an account from the Apostle Paul of how sin arises in him completely naturally in one sense, and in one sense against his conscious will. He does not do what he wants, he says. Now, there's a question there about whether he's describing life before or after coming to faith in Jesus, but actually that isn't the point here. The point is that even unconscious desire whatever period of his life he's talking about, even unconscious desire is an aspect of our sinful nature. If we say, oh, you know, it's only sin if we consciously choose to do it, we then don't actually allow God to deal with the real heart of the problem, the problem of the human heart. And we turn into Pharisees who are only concerned with outward action. Now, the point is, it's not just a disordered view of our body that might fall into that category. It's, a dis- it's disordered desire in, in, in many, many different ways that affect all of us, each one of us, in different ways. A disordered desires in the area of sexuality, which affects we- you know, whether we'd say we're attracted to, to members of the opposite sex, members of the same sex. Our desires are disordered in different ways and an expression of our sinful nature. Now, why why point this out? Isn't this cruel and crushing to point this out in the the context of of transgender and disorders desires? Well, it, it would be cruel and crushing to point it out unless there was a saviour. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Any sinner who comes to Jesus will find full forgiveness, a fresh start because of Jesus' death in our place. And that leads us then to the final stage of the gospel message, to recreation. We've seen creation, decreation, now recreation. Jesus' death and resurrection bring transformed bodies and reordered desires. So 1 Corinthians 15 spells out the implications of Jesus' bodily resurrection for ours, as we heard. So you might want to, to turn to that again. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's a dense argument in those, in those verses that we heard. But the point in one sense is quite straightforward. If Jesus rose from the dead with a new body, Paul is saying, so will we if we're trusting in Jesus. He had a new body, we will get one too. And in particular, Paul uses the metaphor of a seed to show that there is both continuity and transformation between our bodies now and our bodies then. So verse 37 in 1 Corinthians 15, when you plant a seed, you're not planting the finished article, but it's just the beginning. In fact, what goes in the ground must in one sense die. There's a, there's a way of thinking about what you're doing. When you, when you go in the garden and you plant your, 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 your things for next year, there's a sense in which you put the seed and you bury it and it's dead. And yet it then is transformed and grows into something completely different. And what then is the connection between the two? You put a seed in the ground and then the plant later comes out. They are the same organism, aren't they? That there is continuity in identity. Acorns lead to oak trees. Apple seeds lead to apple trees. But there is also transformation and indeed glorification this tiny and weak little seed went into the ground just a tiny tiny shadow of what was to come and and paul is saying it's like that with our bodies in death when they put in the ground just a shadow of what will one day come verse 38 then he says if you look god gives each the body he has determined like the original creation, but it's new, it's perfect, it's unspoiled, it's unspoilable creation. And he then describes it as a spiritual body, verse 44, which mustn't be understood as saying that it's not physical. It's not what he means. We, we, we think in terms of physical and spiritual as being the opposite of one another. That's not how the Bible thinks about it. Because, how do we know that? Well, because Jesus rose with a real physical body. He wasn't a ghost. You, you know, when the disciples touched him, they touched him. He had a physical body. And, and it, because he rose, we will rise. Our resurrection will be like his. That's the logic, do you see? So a spiritual body is one in a, a new mode of existence, a new way of existing under the Spirit's guidance. And this body, verse 53, puts on immortality like a new set of clothes. And so what does this mean then for male and female? What does it mean for the transgender thing? Well, where we end up in the new creation doesn't eradicate what was true of our bodies and in particular what was intended for our bodies from before the beginning of creation as we saw in Genesis. Many years ago, Augustine 
pointed out that this view of male and female continuing in the new creation was confirmed by Jesus when he argued with the Sadducees in, in Luke chapter 20. So the, the, the Sadducees, remember the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sadducees believed there was no resurrection. They were sad, you see. So they invent a story where a woman has seven husbands who all die one after another. And so in doing that, they're trying to trap Jesus, you see. They're trying to create this theoretical situation that shows how ridiculous it is to believe in the resurrection of the dead. You know, because here's this uh, woman with all these different husbands. And if if you're saying, really, that there's a resurrection where everyone's going to rise, well, come on, Jesus, we've got you now, because whose wife will she be in this theoretical resurrection that sounds so silly? So what does Jesus say? He says... There will be no marriage after the resurrection. But how he says it is really important. And he could have said, you see, don't don't you realise she's going to be raised as a man or, or she's going to be raised as a kind of genderless, asexual, neutral being. And that's what we're all going to be. So it's obvious that there is no marriage in the new heavens and the new earth. No, that that, that isn't what he says. What does he say? He says, the people of that age will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And that's very carefully balanced language. And it's the language of the Bible about how people marry. That In the Bible, the man marries and the woman is given in marriage. So do you see? Jesus is affirming in that. He's explaining, you know, marriage is until until death us do part, as we have kept in in our, as we have in our marriage services. But in the new heavens and the new earth, God will restore and perfect this original creation pattern of male and female. It will still be there. That is what God made in the first place. In a transformed way, that is what will be there in the end. And so we put all this together. That means, what have we seen? God gives each person their biological sex. So my biological sex from when I was born will be my God-given biological sex in the resurrection. And if that is true, that has a very deep significance for who I am now. And there are other implications, too, for the body. We, we, we focus a lot on transgenderism, but actually transgenderism is only, in some ways only the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the issues around the body in the 21st century, all of which will affect us in different ways, whether it's maybe obsession with physical health and, and our bodies, maybe it's fear of old age, uh, maybe it's a general sense of, well, I, I, I don't like my body, a desire to be a particular size or shape, Uh, the use of filters and Photoshop on social media to present an acceptable body to the world, this desire to, to, to have a different body from the one that I've been given. Now, that's a complicated thing again, isn't it? It's not that all, every, all of those things that I've just said are automatically bad, but it can absolutely be a denial that a good God has given us the body he's given us as a gift as an, and as an expression of who we are. 
like it or not, this is who I am. And yes, I'm a sinner, and yes, my body is in, um, in many ways spoilt because sin has spoilt the world. And I stand here with resurfaced metal hips that had to be put in when I was in my mid-twenties because I have an, an over-enthusiastic immune system that attacks the body that is meant to be protecting. That's, that's not the dream body. But I'm still God's creature. And my destiny is not to escape this body and become the real me somewhere else, but for one day my body to be planted in the ground like a seed and raised to life in glory with Jesus. And if you're trusting in Jesus, that is your destiny too. Whatever frustrations you have about your body now. Well, where does that leave us then? Not, not with all the answers by any means. Please, please do come back with questions in the Q&A that will help us get into particular issues as best we can. And do grab one of these books that will have, hopefully, the welcome to... Yeah, the, I can see them on the tables at the back. We've got a book that accompanies each of the last three sermons that's um, uh, written by um, Lizzie Ling and Vaughan Roberts. On, and there is one entitled today, Transgender. Do grab one of those as a, just as if you'd like to, um, and uh, that will help you to think further about this too. And look on our website as well. Look on the church website where we've got a big issues page and we've got a whole uh, load more resources and things that will help us to think through these issues together. Um, do have a look there. But maybe it, it just helps us this morning to be clear that even with a complex and a nuanced issue like this it is still the gospel that explains and speaks into it and that is where we need to start because ultimately we have real hope to share with the suffering and the struggling and with those in pain due to gender dysphoria and and issues like it no one ever said the christian life was meant to be easy Jesus said, whoever would come after me would, must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow him. And that, that looks different for each of us. But we have real hope as we struggle on real bodily hope. And once we're clear on that, that is where prayer and compassion and love for the individual suffering come in. So what about those situations? Do I go to the wedding? Well, I, you know, I think it depends. At the very least, talk it through. Pray with others? Do I call someone their new name? Do I use their preferred pronouns? I think most of the time it's basic human decency to refer to someone in the way that they ask you to in in the context of that relationship, even while you might, in other ways, pray for and look for ways to point to an alternative way, a better way to resolve the struggles that we all have in different ways about our bodies. So let's just take a moment now to pause and to reflect to pray for anyone that we know who is directly or indirectly affected by these things. Uh, Before we sing, let's pray. Father God, we do pray for those directly affected by this issue, by struggles with their own identity and struggles with what we read in your words 
Help us, Father, to be prepared to listen to you as our creator, to take seriously what you say in your word, to hold on to the good news of hope in Jesus that is for our bodies, for us. Praise you for that hope that anyone who trusts in Jesus can have. Help us today to trust in him. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.